Let me just say uh, what a privilege it's been to be with you this weekend and uh, to share God's Word with you from the book of Philippians. It's uh, been a real joy and uh, privilege, and uh, I have never seen Sam Young more in my life than over a weekend <laughs> compared to three years, four years at Westminster. So it's been good to finally meet the famous Sam Young. Uh, I saw his name on the canvas, uh, Westminster page. I saw his assignments. I never met him. And uh, it's, it's been really good to meet Sam and get to know him. So, uh, yeah. Brian I was more familiar with. He, he actually came to some of my classes. Some of my classes. So, uh, Please turn in your Bibles or keep them open to uh, Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, uh, to chapter 2, verse 11. This morning's sermon is entitled, Church Unity Through Christ-like Humility. And as we come to God's Word, let us pray. Father, in your light we see light, and so we pray that you would come now and illuminate the reading and the preaching of your word so that we might see Jesus more clearly, love him more dearly, and follow him more nearly. And we ask this in his name, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever praised. Amen. Narcissism. Narcissism. A word of ancient origin, but a reality present in every age. The word narcissism derives from the Greek myth about Narcissus, the handsome Greek youth who fell in love with his own image as he looked uh, into a pool of water. The word is of ancient origin, but it is a reality present in every age. Take King Louis XIV of France, for example. He was known as Louis the Great or the Sun King. He was one of the most famous kings of France. He was so obsessed with himself and with his own greatness that he even arranged everything about his own funeral that day in Notre Dame Cathedral. There was only one light that lit the entire building, a single candle burning at the front of his casket. Even in his death, King Louis XIV of France the Sun King, King Louis the Great, wanted everyone to be focused on him. King Louis is an example of narcissism from centuries ago. Let me give you a modern-day example. Uh, Chris Eubank, the British boxer and world middleweight and super middleweight champion in the 1990s, once said, I am a hero. Go and look the word up in a dictionary and you'll find a photograph of me. When we hear examples like these, we tend to think that narcissism is only a problem for the great and the famous, the celebrities, ancient and modern. But if we are really honest with ourselves, our own natural tendency is to love ourselves and our own image, just like narcissists. Let's be honest, we've all stopped in the hallway to have a wee glance at ourselves in the mirror as we've walked by. 
If we're being really honest, we are no different from the King Louis and the Chris Eubanks of this world. We also have a bent toward narcissism. We also love our own image. We also are proud. If we don't think so, then it's only further evidence that we are indeed proud. Muhammad Ali, the boxer, once said, I'm not conceited, I'm just convinced. Uh, but C.S. Lewis was surely right when he said, if you think you are not conceited, then you are very conceited indeed. So what then are we to do about it? The Bible's answer is very simple. Humble ourselves. Humble ourselves. In fact, more than that, humble ourselves as Jesus did. Humble ourselves as Jesus did. Here is the answer to our narcissism, to our pride, to our self-love, the humility of Jesus Christ, the humility of Jesus Christ. Now, there is a, uh, a slight problem in the way that I've started this sermon, and that is it's all very personal and individualistic. Here we are talking about humility, which by its very definition is other person-centered, and here I am being very self-centered about my introduction. Uh, which is a good reminder that we must understand Paul's exhortation to humility in its proper context. The context of Christian humility is not about personal character. It's not about you becoming a humble person and being admired by others for being a humble person. No, the context of Christian humility is the gospel of Jesus Christ and His church. The context of Christian humility is the gospel of Jesus Christ and His church. Verse 27 of chapter 1 is like a catch-all verse for Philippians. It sort of summarizes the whole book as something chapter 1 verse 21 is, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Some think that's the catch-all verse of Philippians. But when you read the whole book of Philippians, you realize that chapter 1 verse 27 is the poster verse for the whole book. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. The whole book is about living a life worthy of the gospel and standing firm together for the gospel. That's Philippians in a nutshell. Living a life worthy of the gospel and standing firm together for the gospel. And we are to do this, says Paul, in verse 28, in the face of opposition and not frightened in anything by your opponents. Paul addresses two kinds of opponents, two kinds of opposition. One is explicit, the other implicit. There is the explicit opposition from the outside, from false teachers, from those who oppose the gospel. Verse 28, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear 
that I still have. Note that suffering for the gospel here is part and parcel of believing the gospel. And note that both belief and suffering have been granted to us. Faith in Christ is a gift from God. But note also what Paul says, so too is suffering. Verse 29, for it has been granted to you. It has been gifted to you. It has been graced to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him but also suffer for His sake. And that suffering here in verse 28 to 30 is primarily an external opposition. It, the suffering arises from the persecution uh, for standing for Christ and His gospel. As we face external opposition in whatever form, whether it's militant Islam, whether it's secular humanism, whether it's progressive government policies, Paul says we are to live lives worthy of the gospel, and we are to stand firm together for the gospel. That is what we are to do in the face of external opposition. Live a life worthy of the gospel stand firm together for the gospel. But external opposition is not the only conflict that we face as a church. There is also internal and implicit opposition. There is also the danger of strife and self-interest within the church. Look at verse 3 of chapter 2. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Do you see that word rivalry? Do you remember it from last night, chapter 1, verse 15, where Paul said that some were preaching uh, the gospel out of envy and rivalry to stir up affliction for Paul? But do you remember how Paul uh, rejoiced despite them acting out of bad motives, out of rivalry? He rejoiced that Christ was being preached. However, he didn't condone the rivalry. He didn't condone the envy. Because here, in chapter 2, verse 3, he addresses it head on. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit. The devil loves nothing more than strife and division in the church. Christians becoming competitive with each other by developing rivalries, by elbowing each other out in one-upmanship. The devil loves it when we become preoccupied with our self-interests, our own goals, our own ambitions in competition with others. It can be anything in church life from who gets to lead a ministry, from who's the best preacher, from who's the best evangelist, from worship styles from the education of our children, from whatever it is. All of these things can lead to rivalry. And when we behave like this, then we are no longer united as one person contending for the faith of the gospel. We are no longer striving side by side. Instead, we end up competing side by side. And this is what Paul now addresses in Philippians chapter 2, verse 1 to 11. He addresses the danger of the internal opposition, the internal divisions 
as we contend for the gospel together. In chapter 1, 28 to 30, there's the external opposition. But now in chapter 2, there's an even more serious danger, internal divisions. And if I may just speak into the context of your own current church life, I've been hearing wonderful things from your elders about the history of your church and how the Lord has blessed it and how uh, so obviously you're seeking to be a reformed church, always reforming. And as you do that, going back to the Scriptures and allowing your worship services and your church community life to be shaped by the Word of God alone, sola scriptura, the more you do that, the more the world is going to hate you, the more you're going to face opposition. But that is not the greatest danger for the church gathered and scattered. Do you know what your greatest danger is going to be? Internal divisions. Yes, you're going to have the outside opposition. You're going to have people oppose you. But your greatest challenge as you come out of COVID, as you move forward together as a church in the coming months and years, your greatest challenge will be rivalry, selfish ambition. It was the problem in the church in Philippi. It's the problem that every church faces. And here's what Paul wants to say to the church gathered and scattered. Two things. Number one, strive for church unity through humility. Strive for church unity through humility, verses 1 to 4. The if of verse 1 is not a doubtful if, but rather if indeed as is the case kind of if. So verse 1, so if, as indeed is the case, that there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, these four if statements, they recall the supernatural, objective reality of what has occurred in Christians' lives. If we are Christians, then we have received encouragement from being united with Christ, an expression of salvation. If we are Christians, then we have received comfort from His love as displayed in the gospel. If we are Christians, then we have fellowship with the Spirit. When we become Christians, we are baptized by one Spirit into the body of Christ. And if we are Christians, then we have experienced the tenderness and compassion of Christ. So, do you see what Paul is doing here? He's striking a chord of common experience in the heart of all Christians. If you are a Christian, look around and see that the people sitting around you have experienced the exact same thing that you have experienced. They have the same Spirit of Christ in them. And because of that common bond, because of that common experience, Paul says in verse 2, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do you hear the note of unity in that verse? It's hard to miss, isn't it? Every phrase carries the theme of unity, having the same mind. 
not in the intellectual sense, but in the intentional sense, being one in intent and disposition. See, it's not even saying that you all have to think exactly the same way on every issue. It's just saying you all have to have the same intention, the same goal. Having the same love, that's having a reciprocal love for each other. Being in full accord, or more literally, one in spirit. This relates to inner harmony. And then being of one mind, that is, being one in purpose, having a common goal <clears throat> which we all press towards. So that's the goal, church unity, which arises out of our common experience of union with Christ by His Spirit. <clears throat> so that's the common goal. And Paul now explains how we can achieve this goal of church unity, verse 3 and 4. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility kind others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. The word rivalry here refers to selfish ambition. It refers to the person who is out there for themselves. Uh, conceit refers to empty pride or mere pretension. In order to achieve unity, Paul says, we are to do nothing out of selfish ambition or mere pretense. Remember many years ago when uh, we lived in Cambridge, we ran a student ministry, and uh, we had uh, a Swiss girl called Rosalind who was there. She was doing a PhD and one evening we were asking her, tell us what's it like in your area of research? What are the people like that you work with and research with? And she started to speak of the kind of environment that she was in. And she was Swiss French. And she was trying at one point to find the words in English to express how toxic the environment was in which she worked. She couldn't quite get the words. And so she just started doing this. She said, they're all like this. And uh, I said, oh, you mean uh, le elbow. <clears throat> she was just saying that people were elbowing each other out of the way. This was a discipline that she studied in was psychology. Even the psychologists couldn't get along. Why? Because they were just out for themselves. Selfish ambition, pretense, conceit. This is the world's attitude of each man for himself, each woman for herself, the survival of the fittest and keenest and pushiest, all driven by selfish ambition and vain conceit. And Paul calls us away from such motivations. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or empty pride. Note the absolute. Do nothing, absolutely nothing out of rivalry or envy. He doesn't say avoid some things, or in the majority of your life don't be uh, a rival, or don't be envious. No, he says do nothing out of selfish ambition or empty pride. But in contrast, verse 3, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. 
Now, what does count others more significant than yourselves mean? Well, the answer lies in those two words that precede the phrase, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. In humility. The word humility means low, low to the ground, comes from the verb to lower. When it comes to others, Paul says, lower yourself. Don't elevate yourself, lower yourself. Now, he doesn't mean lower yourself in terms of your ability or capability. He doesn't mean act like you don't know what you're doing. He doesn't mean talk like you don't know what you're talking about so you don't draw attention to yourself. He's not saying that. That would be like, uh, say, LeBron James running a basketball sports camp and telling a 10-year-old that he's a way better shooter at three-pointers than he is. I mean, come on. You know, that's not humility. That's just false modesty. It's nonsense. Putting yourself down is not humility. It could mean pride. You could keep putting yourself down in front of others because you're just fishing for another compliment because the first compliment they gave you wasn't big enough. Paul isn't saying that we should go around as Christians and just talk everybody else up and whatever they do and walk around talking ourselves down. Humility is not low self-esteem. Humility is not personal insecurity. The person who is always putting themselves down, do you know what they're doing? They're always talking about themselves. No, the idea of lowering oneself is related to class, to society, to the class in society. Paul is writing to a church set in a Roman colony, and in a Roman society, class was everything. People were treated according to their class, whether they were lower class, middle class, upper class. And Paul says, whatever your class, whatever your status in society, whatever your social standing, treat everyone else like they belong to the class above you. It's like LeBron James treating a 10-year-old like he's royalty rather than just a fan of his. Make sure you lower yourself in the presence of others. It's Jesus, the King, kneeling to wash His disciples' feet, the job of a first-century slave. It's not that Jesus didn't know who He was or forgot who He was. It's not that Jesus uh, was insecure about His identity or His ability. No, He knew exactly who He was, and He chose to lower Himself for the benefit of His disciples. And that is what Paul is encouraging us to do. Consider others more significant than yourself. But not just consider others better than yourself. Look to the interest of others over your own, verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. The thing about humility is that it is inherently other person-centered. It is a lowering yourself in the presence of others in order to look out for the interest of others. Humility is self-sacrificial giving in service of others. Humility is 
self-sacrificial giving in service of others. Again, it's not that the person completely forgets about their own needs or interests. And notice, rather, what Paul says, the humble person looks not only to their own interests. In other words, it's okay to be human. It's okay to look to your own interests. You need to eat. You need to sleep. You need to spend money on yourself for certain things. But what Paul is saying is we ought to put those interests of our own second and put the interests of others first. It's a bit like at the dinner table. Do you go for the salt and pepper first or do you offer it to others first? Do you fill your own glass first or do you fill everyone else's glass first and then your own? That's what humility looks like. It's all about focus. Where does the focus lie? Is it with myself or is it with others? Is it, if it is with the self, then selfish ambition and vain conceit slip in. If, it's, if the focus is on others, then it can be true humility. C.S. Lewis, who was a good man because he was from Northern Ireland, he was a genius. <clears throat> C.S. Lewis uh, once said that heaven was Oxford lifted up and placed in County Down, Northern Ireland. Uh, he was right about County Down, Northern Ireland, but he was wrong about Oxford. It should have been Cambridge lifted up and placed in County Down, Northern Ireland. But C.S. Lewis is one of my favorite writers, and one of the reasons I love, one of the things I love about him is his perception of people Listen to him here about what humility looks like. He says, Do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who is always telling you that, of course, he is nobody. Probably all you will think about this humble man is that he is a very cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in you and what you had to say to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. A good barometer of looking to the interests of others is how well we respond to other people's gifts and abilities and graces. How do you respond when someone uses their gifts or expresses their ability in something? How do you respond when someone gets complimented by others for their gifts or abilities or graces? Gifts, abilities, and graces that God has given them. Remember Rico Tice, who designed Christianity Explored in the UK, said, every time I hear someone on my staff team preach well, a little part of me dies. Very honest. Very honest of him. Uh, my mom's best friend is called Marilyn. Uh, she's a lovely woman, and um, my mom said to me one time, she said, you know why Marilyn is such a good friend to me? She says, because not only does she support me when things are bad, but she genuinely rejoices with me when things are going well. I knew Marilyn's pastor, and he said to me one day in passing, he said, I think Marilyn Campbell is the nicest person I've ever met. 
I think he was describing Marilyn's humility. She put the interests of others above her own. She rejoiced when others uh, showed their ability or were complimented or received gifts. She rejoiced with them. It's a beautiful thing when you see genuine humility in a person. True humility is other person-centered. But if humility is the key to church unity, the question is, how can we attain such humility? Because that is Paul's point here in the first point. Strive for church unity through humility. Be an other person-centered church member. That's what Paul's encouraging each of us to be. Strive for church unity through humility. But the question is, if humility is the key to church unity, how can we attain humility? How can we be humble? Well, Paul gives us the answer. Strive for church unity through humility, verses 1 to 4, by conforming to Christ's humility. By conforming to Christ's humility, verses 5 to 11. And I say conform to Christ's humility rather than imitate Christ's humility because this is not just a moral example that Paul puts before us. Anyone can try to imitate or follow Christ's example. Some people think Christ was a great man, a great teacher. His life was very exemplary. Oh, yes, it'd be good if you could just follow that, imitate that. No, but what Paul says here is be conformed to the humility of Jesus Christ. And that means it can only be something done by a Christian because only Christians are united to Christ by His Spirit, verse 1. See, being precedes doing. Being precedes doing. We are united to Christ. Therefore, we now conform ourselves to the example of Christ, to His humility, but only because we are first united to Christ. Don't try to imitate Christ if you're not a Christian, okay? That's just called Pelagianism. If you want to know what Pelagianism is, ask Sam Yang afterwards. I think that was the one class in doctrine he attended. Okay, that's not Christian, just trying to imitate Christ. No, it's about being united to Christ first and then conformed to the image of Christ. And what follows in verses 6 to 11 about Christ's humility is an early Christian hymn about Christ. And each line is deeply rich, and it serves us well now to spend some time unpacking it. Verse 6, verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. The phrase, a thing to be grasped, is an idiom for taking advantage of something. So the verse means that although Christ was very nature God, He did not consider His equality with God an opportunity for grasping, for snatching, for taking advantage of His position. No, although Christ was of the exact same nature as God, very God of very God, as we say in the Nicene Creed, He did not use His equality with God 
for his own self-centered ends. He didn't snatch. He served. He didn't grab. He gave. He didn't assert his rights. He gave up his rights. And Paul explains how he gave up his rights in verse 7 to 8. But being made nothing, sorry, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Verse 7 concerns Christ emptying himself. Verse 8 concerns Christ humbling himself. In both cases, note that it is Christ who is the subject of the verb. Christ does the emptying. Christ does the humbling. The word himself in both lines means that the only agent at work here is Christ. That is to say, Christ was not emptied. Christ emptied himself. Christ was not humbled. Christ humbled himself. This was not something done to him. This was something he did himself. Well, let's take a look, of, look at each of these. Verse 7, but emptied himself. Now, we need to be really clear here in our theology of Christ's emptying himself. It does not mean that he emptied himself of his deity, because the Gospels tell us that Christ really was God's Son in human flesh, and we have affirmed that this morning, as we've said, the Apostles' Creed. It does not mean that he emptied himself of his glory, for John, in his gospel, tells us that in his coming to earth we beheld his glory. It means that Christ emptied himself of all his rights. Look at the second line of verse 7. Taking the form of a servant. That is the qualifying phrase for the first part of verse 7. By, but made himself nothing by taking the form of a servant. The word servant here is literally slave. Servants or slaves in the first century didn't have any rights. Christ gave up all his rights, rights that were in direct proportion to who he was. Now, again, we need to be careful here. It was not that Christ exchanged the very nature of God for the very nature of a servant. Rather, in his incarnation, in his being born in the likeness of men, he took upon himself the nature of a servant. The very act of the incarnation was itself an act of service. Although Christ was equal with God, he gave up his rights. He emptied himself of all his rights, and he took the form of a slave, someone who had no rights the God who created rights, who owns all the rights in the world, came to earth with no rights whatsoever. Foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And that making himself nothing, that taking the form of a servant occurred through his incarnation, the final part of verse 7, being born in the likeness of men. 
here again is a great mystery. The pre-existent Son of God who was eternally equal with the Father in power and glory in every way became a human being. He was equal with God in every way, and in every way he became a human being. Augustine of Hippo in a Christmas sermon captures some of the mystery so beautifully. He through whom time was made was made in time. And he, older by eternity than the world itself, was younger in age than many of his servants in the world. He who made man was made man. He was given existence by a mother whom he brought into existence. He was carried in hands which he formed. He nursed at breasts which he filled. He cried like a babe in the manger in speechless infancy, this word without which human eloquence is speechless. The prince who made the Taj Mahal palace in India had the architect's eyes plucked out and the hands cut off of every man who worked on the marble stones so that they could never replicate their work. Qin Shi Huang, the first emperor of China, had 8,000 clay soldiers made for him to protect him in the afterlife. They're now known as the terracotta soldiers. After the slaves had finished making the soldiers, Qin Shi Huang had all of them executed. Why did these rulers, prince in India, emperor in China, why did these rulers behave like this? Because they were the prince. They were the emperor. They could do whatever they wanted. They used and abused their position to get, get, get whatever they wanted with no regard for others. They were grabbers. They were graspers. They were snatchers. But what did Christ do as one who was equal with God and to whom all power and authority belonged? What did He do? He gave, not grasped. He served, not enslaved. Meekness and majesty, manhood and deity, in perfect harmony, the man who is God, Lord of eternity, dwells in humanity, kneels in humility, and washes our feet. Lord of eternity washes our feet. And that kneeling to wash our feet, something only a slave did, was only a foreshadowing of a greater act of lowering himself. Verse 8, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Here was the utmost limits of his lowering himself. He lowered himself even to death but not just any death, even death on a cross. That last phrase in verse 8 is delayed in the syntax for emphasis. To the point of death, even death on a cross. 
I think that as Christians we can become so familiar and have become so familiar with Christ's death on the cross that we don't see the shock factor in what Paul has just said there. Uh, today, crosses adorn our necklaces, our bracelets, our earrings. They're colorfully decorated in our churches. We make fancy designs of them for our church logos. The cross in our modern world is no longer offensive. But in the ancient world, the cross was a vile symbol. It would be like walking around with a necklace with a little symbol of a gas chamber in Auschwitz on your necklace. Imagine having that on your church logo, a gas chamber from Auschwitz. For the Roman citizen, the word cross was actually a swear word. They never used it in polite conversation. The cross was associated with forms of torture, including flogging the criminal for days in an unspeakable manner. Origen, the early church father, referred to it as the utterly vile death of the cross. I don't know if you have seen the movie, The Passion of the Christ. It came out in the 1990s. Some of you maybe weren't born then. Uh, but Mel Gibson produced a movie in the 90s called The Passion of the Christ. Or sorry, it was early, early 2000s he produced it. Um, Don Carson, the professor of New Testament at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, was invited to go and see it. Mel Gibson didn't do any advertising for the movie on TV or news channels. All he did was he gave out free passes for religious leaders to go and see it. So Don Carson got an invite to go and see it. And after the movie, he came out and the deal was that you would be interviewed by a reporter afterwards. And so the reporter comes up to Don Carson and says, so what do you think of the movie? It's quite brutal, isn't it? I mean, it's not the sort of movie you can eat your popcorn to, is it? To which Don Carson replied, that's a good point. But then maybe what Mel Gibson is trying to say is, shut up and put your popcorn down. This happened. It was that brutal. Now, I'd love to have seen the reporter's face at that response. But it's true, isn't it? Sometimes we need to shut up and put our popcorn down and think about what the cross of Christ meant. It was bloody. It was brutal. It was vile. He hung naked upon a cross. That is how far Christ humbled himself, even to death on a cross. How pathetic then is our competitiveness or rivalry with each other at the foot of that cross? How insulting then is our putting others down and elevating ourselves at the foot of that cross? How ugly is our self-interest, self-ambition, self-focus, self, 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 self at the foot of that cross. The cross is the epitome of the crucified self. It's the most glorious display of other person-centeredness. 
As one preacher put it, Jesus didn't say, come, take up your mirror and follow me. He said, deny yourself. Come and take up your cross and follow me. The cross is the epitome of the crucified self. The epitome of the crucified self. This was the extent of Christ humbling himself. He let himself be crucified by others for the sake of others. But he did not remain crucified in shame and ignominy on the cross. Verse 9, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The Son, Christ, is the main actor in verses 6 to 8, but now God the Father takes over in verses 9 to 11. The shift occurs through that one word at the beginning of verse 9, therefore. Therefore. It's one of the most important and powerful and significant therefores in the whole Bible. Christ emptied and humbled Himself. Therefore, God highly exalted Him. Because Christ emptied Himself to the lowest place, Therefore, God the Father exalted him to the highest place. Christ lowered himself to the lowest place, even death on a cross. So God exalted him to the highest place. And he gave him the highest name, verse 9. He bestowed on him the name that is above every name. A name in ancient times was thought to reveal a person's true nature. I think the name that Jesus receives is the name Lord, hence verse 11, that every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. This is why the name is above all other names, because there is no higher name than God's name, which is Lord. Why did Jesus receive the very name of God, the very title of God? because this is his reward for his redeeming work on the cross. The Father rewarded Jesus with his own name. The Father conferred on his Son his own title, Lord, because he had earned it through his great act of humiliation in the incarnation and in the work of redemption. Paul tells us that the purpose of Jesus receiving the name Lord is so that his universal rule would be seen by all. Verse 10, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is not talking about universal salvation, but rather universal acknowledgement, universal vindication that Jesus will finally be seen to be Lord by everyone, of everyone. Everyone from Kim Jong-un to your next-door neighbor, 
to the person you're sitting on the bus with tomorrow on your way to work. Everyone is going to bow the knee and willingly or unwillingly submit to Jesus Christ and declare Him to be Lord. And we will do it all to the glory of God the Father. Here is the ultimate end of all things, God, uh, the glory of God the Father. And here too is the final aspect of what it means to be uh, humble as a Christian. Here's the final aspect of Christian humility. Humility is sacrificial, self-giving for the sake of others to the glory of God the Father. Humility is sacrificial, self-giving for the sake of others to the glory of God the Father. There is the final antidote to pride and self-love. Not only the cross, but God and His glory. That day at the funeral of King Louis XIV of France, the court preacher, Massillon, rose to give the funeral sermon. All eyes were fixed on the casket of King Louis XIV. Massillon walked to the casket, leant forward, and blew out the candle. And out of the darkness of Notre Dame Cathedral, the people heard these opening words, only God is great. Only God is great. And Jesus has shown us what that greatness looks like. Sacrificial self-giving for the sake of others to the glory of God, and that is what leads to church unity. So may God help you as a church to strive for church unity through Christ-like humility. Let us pray. Father, before you, we are mere creatures made in your image, dependent upon you for everything. In you, we live and move and have our being. But we are also sinners before you as well. You are a holy God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of your glory. And we are aware today, Father, woe is us, for we are a sinful people. And yet in your mercy, you've redeemed us by your Son, the Lord Jesus. And you've done that through his great act of humility on the cross, even to death on a cross. So we pray, Father, that being forgiven for our sins, having received the Holy Spirit, knowing what it is to have fellowship with Christ and now with one another, we pray that you would help us to strive for church unity through Christ-like humility. Please, would you conform us more and more by your Spirit to the image of your dear Son, so that we would put the interests of others above our own, and that we would act like Christ did for us. We ask all of this for the glory of your name. Amen.